Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from a Prova Education Live event titled, Building an Effective Preterm Infant Nutrition Discharge Plan. Here's Dr. Jay Kim, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. So uh, just as an intro, I am a, a neonatologist and a pediatric gastroenterologist at uh, UC San Diego. And what I'm going to share with you are little tidbits of uh, a program that we created called SPIN, uh, called Supporting Premature Infant Nutrition, uh, that we've had in, in progress for the last three years at our, at our hospital. And it, one of the cruxes of it is the integration of nutrition and lactation, given the importance of human milk in, in the NICU. And so, I, I, as I, again, I was, I'm going to try and focus in the next 20 minutes on this bridge, the gap that really, if you can imagine uh, a relay race and the handoff of the neonatal group to, with the baton to the pediatrician, and it's something that I think I haven't met any group in, uh, in the country that doesn't think that, that there, is a, there is a problem here in this particular handoff. One uh, observation that's important is the impact of how sensitive our preemies are to nutritional intake. And in hospital, we certainly see that in the growth pattern for a baby who's on parenteral nutrition isn't very dramatic. And it's only when they start to get enteral nutrition that real appropriate uh, growth takes place. But any abrogation, any cessation of that enteral feeding re results in a very dramatic change in their, in their growth pattern. And if you do a relative uh, uh, calculation of how fast the preemies grow, the smallest preemies in our unit, the 500, 600 grammars are growing at a relative rate of, uh, for an average adult of about three pounds uh, per day. So you can imagine how much you, you just finished eating and just triple or quadruple it. That's the kind of uh, energy intake that our babies are getting. So it's not surprising that small changes in nutrient intake can affect their growth, growth pattern. So as part of our SPIN program, uh, we had multiple aspects that uh, very much like the baby-friendly initiative where there are quality, measure, quality measures of improvement within the hospital that we implement. We had a bunch of, a bunch of um, items that we wanted to focus on, priority that are revolved around nutrition, but also around uh, lactation, and particularly around just trying to develop better standardization. So one of the, one of the ones that we have as initiatives was standardizing post-discharge nutrition. And so the question is, why standardize? And particularly, why do we standardize when there is not a uh, great amount of evidence? And it's very clear, uh, certainly in, in, in my practice at two different institutions and as I, as I meet with other people, that the more people you have, particularly the more attendings you have, the more variability you have in practice. And the less evidence there are, the more variability um, there is in practice. And there's a large amount of data out there to suggest, and it, it kind of makes sense just intuitively that if you can, if you have a lot of variability, that that provides a, a really a, not the best care. And the more you can uh, bring the care and the standard of, of variab the, the variability of practice tighter, you're actually delivering better care, even when you don't have the final answer, the best solution. By doing practicing the same you're enabling yourself to provide uh, better care, and you're going to know that if you, if you you've practice a certain way for a few, uh, say, six months or a year, you'll have a better idea of whether that intervention, that practice that you have done as a group, 
has actually made a difference or not made a difference in order for you to make uh, future changes. So I think it's an important aspect of, uh, of being able to provide better care, even in the absence of good, ev good evidence. And so in the nutrition area, what are the th kinds of things that we could uh, implement as standardized care? Well, how we respond to uh, the nutrient, uh, uh, strategizing nutrient delivery, what are our, our global or our accepted energy targets and nu nutrient targets, and what, are, what, do we, what do we consider good growth? A lot of these things are important to have discussions within your own uh, unit, and even if you're outside as a pediatrician, to have some targets that you can um, approximate for babies that are growing. And so uh, we w had uh, put together areas that we would consider important to standardization items. And growth was something where uh, there was a lot of varied practice. So even a simple thing of how, which growth chart do you use? And there are hospitals that had multiple different growth charts in, in use. And it's good to standardize the practice with one, one uh, a minimum, hopefully just a, a single chart that could work with you. Um, having a nutrition discussion within the, the neonatal environment, I think, is, is one of the important things that we, we found. The more you discuss it, uh, the more people put it up on the table, because a lot of times things, when there's not a lot of knowledge or not a lot of evidence, people start to uh, uh, almost make themselves blind to some of the, the details. Um, I think having one of the approaches that we had in hospital, that the early uh, part of the post-discharge where there are not a lot of players once that baby goes out. Uh, oftentimes it's just the pediatrician out there. And what, what we're hoping to see is greater involvement, just as how we have a multidisciplinary team that works intensively within the hospital, um, having uh, occupational therapists for feeding, lactation for, uh, for milk production, and, and our, our nursing uh, um, uh, uh, community. Um, that we have multiple players that, that often disappears when a baby goes, goes home. And certainly we've found that in hospital, the idea of a multidisciplinary nutrition slash uh, lactation group is very powerful for standardizing, being able to standardize care. Fenton growth chart is uh, currently one of the main standards. It's a fairly wide adoption of this growth chart, and it's, and it's good for a, a variety of reasons. The main thing that it is uh, a single chart and it enables you to be able to plot babies both in hospital and just shortly out of hospital because of the, the fact that she, it's a concatenated growth chart if you don't know. She had a bunch of in utero charts, that they, chart data that she put together for the pre-term area and then post-term she attached the WHO um, or the CDC growth chart too and smoothed out the, um, the, the points where the two graphs met. And so it enables you to have one growth chart to follow but uh, as, I, as I visit many places, m m the availability of a growth chart to the receiving pediatrician is often uh, not there. And so they just get a discharge letter, and that's about it, and very little about nutrition. The other growth chart that's emerged that I think is, is, is actually a, it's an excellent single data source uh, growth chart is the Olson Pediatrics growth chart. And uh, I'm, I'm personally I'm waiting for the growth chart to separate out to help us by adding, uh, like, like the Fenton chart, a growth chart that concatenates the WHO or the CDC growth chart after term. It is sex-based, so you have male and female, so there are slight, slight differences to how male and female grow. And I think within your own respective institutions, it's important to, to have a discussion about which growth charts um, uh, to use. Uh, I think either one would be perfectly valid. One of the concerns that, that I have with, 
when you couple the idea that the, um, the nutritional emergency is present when the preterm infant is, not, is, is requiring extreme amounts of nutrient intake to grow, that a lot of us wait for growth failure or very poor growth before res responding and reacting. So a lot of our, our uh, approach is, is, uh, is, is reactive as opposed to being preemptive or proactive. And I think when, when you have that much of a crisis that every day of lost uh, uh, nutrient intake and energy and poor growth leads to a cumulative deficit as described by, very nicely by Embleton's paper, um, it may be more important for us to start dialing in some preemptive strategies collectively. And one of the things that we, we introduced, uh, and I know several other groups have introduced too, is to try to provide more protein, particularly for the smallest babies. And that's, that was an important strategy to kind of already automatically have them have higher, higher amounts. And there have been groups that even add extra HMF steps on top of the, the standard, uh, standard steps. And you've already heard that at discharge, we have a real problem with deficits, not only in energy, deficits in specific micro and macronutrients. And I'm, you know, I think one area that we're still having uh, difficulty grappling with is the bone mineral density of a lot of our kids. We think we're doing great, but when we see the x-ray of a preemie at, at discharge, it clearly is um, deficient. And if you have x-ray changes of sort of, sort of ghost-like uh, bones or ribs, you're already gone quite far, far out in terms of uh, loss of bone mineral density. Now, the, the, the good thing is that many of these babies uh, will catch up over time, but the, the, there's less data to know what's the impact of having such deficits in numerous uh, nutrient, uh, nutrient uh, components at the time of discharge. And as, uh, as again was mentioned that although we are very much proponents uh, across the board for human milk as being the preferred and optimal feeding choice for the preterm infant, if you, there's plenty of data suggested if you just choose human milk alone, especially at the, at the point of discharge, um, that it may be quite insufficient for a lot of the babies that we're graduating, particularly because they've already had accrued a deficit, an, what, we, what they term the extra uterine growth restriction at the time of, of, of discharge. And as we started in our center starting to look more and more about human milk nutrition, we started to use some technology to actually measure the macronutrient components of, of human milk. And there's actually data before that illustrate this, the point I'm going to make, is that human milk, the more you get into human milk nutrition, whether it's in hospital or out of hospital, the more variability there is and less you're going to know about what you're delivering to your patient that the variability that's inherent in human milk for macronutrient content and therefore energy varies significantly. And, and so it's, I, I sort of term it a, a black box. It's become very uh, uh, difficult for us now to kind of know which baby is not getting enough of uh, certain components. And so newer technology like the near-infrared or, uh, or the mid-IR or mid-infrared technology are coming out into uh, clinical research environment. And so we're trying to get better at understanding the, what's in mother, mother's milk and, and actually taking it and custom fortifying that. And so we're, we and others are starting some strategies as, by measuring what's, what's in the milk and trying to react to that.
So this, is, this just illustrates how much variability you can have when you just take a random sample of mom's milk. Moms that can produce as low as, if 20 is sort of the average, half, maybe 50% are outside of a plus or minus 10% range around that 20 kilocal per ounce. And so some moms will make 12 calories and then other moms will make 30 cal uh, uh, milk. So high octane or very low dilute milk can be quite variable and you don't know it when you're pulling out the milk sample when, you're, when mom's been delivering over a period of time. The other observation that we found that's been published and, and, and uh, described uh, over many years is the idea that human milk protein changes over time. So even the period at po a point of where lactation is is really important to, uh, to know because it, there's, a, there's a slow decrease in the protein content in human milk. And this becomes relevant when you look at donor milk because a lot of donor milk that people use is actually term milk that's a couple of months old in terms of lactation time. And so the protein content in donor milk typically is a little bit lower than you would see in preterm mom's milk that's fresh uh, at the beginning of lactation cycle. And so in hospital we have, although we do have the option of donor human milk and, that, and we're, our centers are obviously very big proponents of the use of donor milk, the caveat is that you have to know what you're giving and uh, one of the issues is that the protein content may be, uh, may be insufficient and that you might need to have for, for improved growth. Because I've heard many groups say, well, we started donor milk, but the babies just don't grow very well. And this may be one of the, the culprits in that. Um, the other strategies is we're, we've obviously been happy that there have been a lot of different selection in preterm infant formula, and it's increasing. Um, although it would be great to have a few more uh, ingredients in, those, in, the, in that product uh, over time. Now the biggest point I want to make is what I talked about, that baton handing over from the neonatologist uh, and the neonatal group over to the PCP or the primary care uh, provider. And it's an observation that we have such intensive care for these, these infants when they're small and fragile. And even at the time of discharge, there's still a very strong multidisciplinary approach and intensity about how they're cared. They're still on a monitor by the time, at the time of the discharge. And then they're literally just sort of the, imagine them being kind of pushed off a cliff. And they get one note, if that, and the pediatrician receives this baby and really has to struggle in their 15 minutes uh, uh, time point to figure out what to do with this baby. How is this baby supposed to grow? What am I supposed to monitor? And what are the general targets? And when, they, when, when it's that daunting, it can be very, very subject to very high variability and the question about whether that's going to be best care. And so I liken it to the, the, the baking and, and uh, preparing of a really nice cake and getting everything all perfect, and it just takes one bad drop for everything to go awry. And I think that's one of the areas, that's why I think this whole area of nutritional handoff uh, needs more attention by all of us. So ask yourself, do you have an organized discharge plan? And where does discharge nutrition uh, factor in, into there? Does anyone actually reach out to the uh, primary care pediatrician? Um, do, you, do you even provide a growth chart to the pediatrician to show them what, um, what growth has been like? A baby who started at the 50th percentile dropped down to the third percentile and hasn't caught up is a very different baby and, and a pediatrician should want to know that to kind of address should I be trying to get that baby back to a genetic potential of 50 percent, et cetera. And uh, what about nutrient supplements? What, what, uh, what are the targets for that? And are there blood tests that, uh, that need to be done uh, o over time? And
Should we be seeing babies earlier? Uh, certainly by neonatal follow-up, we're not seeing them until six months corrected, and that clearly is too far out uh, as far as time. So when we were constructing how do we, how do we prepare uh, a nutritional discharge, we talked about uh, having just a much more concerted effort, a multidisciplinary sign-off in terms of lactation, our dietitian, and it developing a plan well, with, well before uh, the time of discharge. And this information um, would get sort of consolidated in, into a product, and the product would be like a nutritional handoff uh, a set of instructions for the pediatrician, but also for the, uh, the parents to have in their hands to kind of know uh, what, what was expected from a nutritional perspective for them as they're he heading out and the facts would, uh, of, this, of this information would go to the primary care pediatrician. I'll show you an example of that. Um, I wanted to ask a, sort of in, within the talk a, a question to you, so it's another uh, audience response uh, a question. So how often um, do you add more fortification if you are in hospital uh, following standard 24 kilocal per ounce uh, supplementation. So that's the routine uh, fortification strategy for the preterm infant less than 1,500 grams birth weight. How often do you go beyond that? One for never, two for sometimes, three for often, and four always. Okay, so 11% never. 39% sometimes and 34% and 16% always. So I'm, I think this is, a, this is a good example of, of sort of the variability in practice. Now, the, the correct answer is obviously going to be m very much uh, reflected in what your patient population is. So I think if you're a very high risk, you know, you have a lot of babies who are less than 1,500 and you're, you're you have got a lot that maybe are growth restricted, you're, you're going to be more challenged to have uh, better growth at, uh, at by providing greater uh, fortification. A lot of groups that just stay at 24, the limitation for the smallest babies is that they're going to have to take a lot more intake. In, so more volume in order for them to meet the requirements. And so it's, it's a challenge, and it depends on what your patient population, if you've got a lot of chronic lung kids, um, you've got, a, you've got some, some restrictions on how much fluid you're able to provide, and so you've got to have other strategies by dent, making the, the nutrient intake more calorie rich. Um, so I think this is a great example of, of that variability in practice. But it does, as I mentioned, reflect what practice you have. Some of the variability in recommendations, and that's adding to our confusion. The Canadian um, uh, uh, Pediatric Society had talked about the importance of post-discharge nutrition and the goal, uh, goals of, um, of uh, achieving some kind of catch-up growth. And we'll talk a little bit, hopefully, in the question period about what catch-up growth May, may represent, and the AAP has certainly created a lot of confusion in retracting the, uh, the idea of some fortification, particularly with formula, over, over time. And, uh, and, uh, and you've also heard about the European uh, comments. And our options, part of, the op part of the problem is that when you look at the options, if you have too many options, you have even more confusion because people don't know uh, what to choose or it's a lot more challenging to, to make that decision. So human milk, we know, is um, there are a lot of options. Some groups just send out babies on human milk alone. Some with uh, post-discharge powdered formula. 
uh, added to the milk. Some add additional bottles of milk, and uh, others use just a straight uh, high-density, high high-calorie liquid fortifier. And on the formula end, you have whole variety, either just going out to standard term formula, which would be mineral, minerally uh, low, uh, or using some of the post-discharge or nutrient-enriched uh, formulas that are available to us uh, going home. And when you compare the variability uh, of energy and uh, macronutrients and also minerals, it's important to look at these elements in, in separate because, of the, because they have different, there are different targets for you. Because sometimes you'll have a baby that's actually growing very well, so they're getting lots of energy, but they may not be getting, in, you, they may be minerally challenged, and so you don't want to just shunt them back to a, a nutrient intake with low, low minerals. And probably the, uh, it's important to kind of look at some of the strategies and how you can have differences in energy and, and mineral intake. And I think it's the, the mineral intake that has me most worried that we really don't have that figured out completely at this time. And so uh, in the post-discharge environment, we're talking about how providing more of these each individual elements. We, many babies, especially in that early period post-discharge, require more energy, definitely more protein for the growth uh, potential, and minerals across the board because they are really uh, going home many times with the mineral deficit that they've accrued over their hospitalization. And when we look at how we're going to manage patients, we have some, some individual targets that we want to approach, whether it's just overall growth, we have very poor measures of body composition, but we want to kind of have a sense of bone status, iron status, vitamin status, and of course the, 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 the holy grail is the neurodevelopmental outcomes of our babies. And so we have different strategies in terms of how we would measure some of these elements like weight, length, and just uh, basic anthropomorphic measurements. With body composition, I think we're still at the early phases because the, although there are technologies, some of the technologies like DEXA scans, hard to get access to, and the more recent air displacement um, uh, technology um, is also still somewhat limited, particularly in the in-hospital environment. In the out-of-hospital, there's a little bit more data to suggest that it might be useful as a trend mechanism. And uh, measuring bone mineral density is very, very challenging. And so a lot of our biochemical markers are, are difficult because they, they don't necessarily immediately correlate or are good correlates of bone, bone mineral density. But I would argue that doing nothing or checking nothing is not, uh, is not necessarily a good strategy. And our, our bias, at least at UC, UC San Diego, is that we at least try to capture some information, even if it's a crude, crude measure of, of these things. Um, and experts in the field also talk about ferritin for iron as being a measure. It's probably most useful uh, to have ferritin measures that are, that are low, and low ferritin would be a predictive of low stores. High ferritins are going to be a little harder because they can be elevated for a variety of different reasons. And vitamin D is, is a whole other topic, but I raise it only because that I think we have, we have to be much more concerned about what babies start off with because there's probably 20 20% or so moms in a lot of different populations that are vitamin D deficient. And so their babies are vitamin D deficient. And it takes us a long time to get them to caught up. And many of them probably aren't getting caught up with the supplements that we would normally give. And we know now that vitamin D is more than just for bones, that it's actually very critical for immune system and other functionings of the body. So I think it's an important aspect that 
that really becomes relevant to us in all across the whole health spectrum. And uh, one, one last question uh, for you to answer. How often do you participate in the preparation or receipt of a nutrition and or lactation discharge plan for the preterm infant in your unit or in your hospital? So one for very often, two often, three sometimes, four rarely, and five never. So please answer. So these are re really reassuring uh, data for me that many do participate. Um, and so that, and in either very often or often, so what is that, 60, 75% uh, of you are participating in that process. So, uh, and I would, I, what I would encourage is that that participation, uh, depending on your, your unit, uh, really should involve a multiple group of people, particularly the lactation, uh, your lactation specialist and also your uh, nutritionist in that uh, handoff. And uh, what I'm going to just fin finish off with you is just w how we've tried to implement uh, approaches by doing a multidisciplinary approach um, and try to building it in within a product that's a formal nutritional discharge plan, but really it was putting on one sheet some of our nutritional recommendations, our breastfeeding and our lactation recommendations, attach a growth chart to it and have that as a handoff so there'd be very specific fortification strategies for, uh, so that they would know what to do if the, if this, if the baby was bigger, in the case uh, that they're greater than 1,800 grams uh, or if they're less than 1,800 grams. Our strategy, and it was largely based we originally had very long uh, nutritional discharge, uh, nutritional fortification, and we found that, in fact, it, it, it was very impractical. We use the 12 weeks now as just kind of a good, solid, minimum uh, strategy to be able to ensure that at least get that 12 weeks out that they're fortified to really improve um, their outcome. And I'm going to, as part of our, our SPIN program, we developed a premature infant nutrition clinic really to try to help establish a more connected bridge between the in-hospital nutritional management and the out-of-hospital management. You've been listening to a Prova Education live event presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.